we're back. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am your co-host, Mike One. Co-host also, Mike, in a moment as we bring you the start of our Mink miniseries. Michael, we are going to go through a couple films from this guy, a couple films from that guy, and all of it's going to lead up to our review of the movie Mank from David Fincher, one of Netflix's latest releases and Oscar hopefuls. I'm so excited about this. I know it was a long layoff. I know we had uh, some crazy shit go down in our lives. We watched Hillbilly Elegy and the world went to hell. That's what happened. We watched Hillbilly Elegy. We wrote that off, even though I'm going to have a really fun review of it on the movie marathoners pod but i stuffed i gave it all to to Marty is what happened i gave it all mm-hmm. to him so you guys make sure you listen to that pod i think it's coming out tomorrow on hillbilly elegy 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 whatever we don't care enough I, i'll never speak the name of that movie again it doesn't matter it was worse than we ever imagined but much worse uh so bad really bad i'm excited for some good movies and i think Same. we both needed this desperately yeah. To get some classics in an old classic, a new classic, a young priest, an old priest, a, you know, <laughs> Mank, which I, I just really love. It's probably going to be a favorite on the year, if not one of the best films of the year for me. And uh, we're going to do a little award show at the end of it. But we basically got four episodes to get you guys ready and in and out of Mank here and talk a lot of Herman Mankiewicz, William Randolph Hearst, Orson Welles, Upton Sinclair, all the politics of the pre-war 1940s, what you have been waiting for all of this time. (laughs) And oh yeah, David Fincher honoring his dad's script. Just a beautiful story. And something uh, terribly foreboding, too, as far as Orson Welles predicting the future and what may be to come as far as megalomaniacs and their intrusion into politics. But we'll cover all of it. But like Mike just alluded to, we're, we're giving you a Mank miniseries. The first step of that is going to be our review today of Citizen Kane. Uh, Mike told you we're gonna, probably going to go from here, pivot to something Fincher did. We're thinking the social network for that uh, before we do wrap up with Mank and an awards show. So let's talk about, you know, the 800... Pound gorilla slash elephant slash Xanadu in the room, as many people obviously consider Citizen Kane as the best film of all time, and it lives on just about every best of American films list that has ever been written. And and rightfully so for for many reasons, I would think. But I, I you know, I'm we're gonna have to talk about and give our stories. Uh, behind our many watches of Citizen Kane at this point because we both have seen it years ago and we've come back to it and mm. you know it was the it was the movie that you know was overrated for so long right and <laughs> in our lives and uh, I, I think uh, I think you know now we can come at it from a more mature angle I would say I hope as somewhat of an actual critics, yeah, as, uh, <laughs> as people who, who can speak about the movies and actually have respect for what they're doing. And I think you hit the nail on the head earlier, man. I, there's nobody more in dire need of decent movies than me because I have just, you have found some bright line in this year. I have just not been a fan of 2020 thus far. And I know it's a weird year, so I'm hoping Mank, I have not watched it yet. You have seen it a couple times. I'm hoping Mank uh, can pick up the slack for some of this 
what we've had that's supposed to be awards caliber. So it's nice to cleanse the palate and get in our hands on and sink our teeth into an actual classic here. So as always, the first half of this review, probably the first three quarters, to be honest with you guys, mm-hmm. is going to be spoiler free. You'll get a spoiler warning before we dive into the plot. So, Michael, you've already teased it. Let's introduce Citizen Kane. And before we get into our own personal Rosebud stories, Mike, I'd like to run a quote by you. And if you could let me know which legendary film film critics surmise this film using these words quote the word rosebud is maybe the most significant word in film and what we all watch the word rosebud has captivated so many moviegoers and movie watchers for so many years and to this day is perhaps the single word and perhaps if they came up with another word that means that same thing it wouldn't have worked but rosebud works so that's statler and waldorf the uh <laughs> and they're they're they, you know they, they're in a balcony right yeah, you're so close, man. It's our president, Donald Trump. No, really? <laughs> I swear to God. That's his quote, uh, surmising <laughs> Citizen Kane, where he also went on to say it's a movie about a man who suffer who suffers uh, a bit of a downfall, but not financial downfall. <laughs> well, to each their own. And I think that's the, that's the thesis of this entire episode. So I'm so glad you put that uh, forth <laughs> because we're going to get into that a lot. And I think the most fascinating thing about Mank in fact, is the politics, but we will talk about it. Of course, this film is directed, produced, co-written by and starring Orson Welles, Mike. We have Citizen Kane marking his feature debut, even though he made some short films in Woodstock. He directed some plays in Illinois and and across the pond there in Great Britain. Uh, He was uh, a major prodigy on Broadway after uh, after doing Shakespeare in Harlem as well. Uh, he formed the Mercury Theater, uh, and they played very fast and loose with their finances, which uh, Orson Welles would kind of do throughout his career. He has famously <laughs> gone, gone over budget. Uh, if you watch The Other Side of the Wind, if you watch The Love Me When I'm Dead, I mean, that guy... Did not he wasn't great with money. He's kind of very you know, mirrored he mirrored his uh Charlie Foster. He bought a lot King. of statues, is what you're saying. And it, the film equivalent, the director's equivalent of buying a lot of statues. But luckily Wells kind of offset some of his uh theatrical spending with his radio work, Mike. And after several readings of the classics uh uh for multiple uh, networks in New York City. He made a CBS deal that would change history as we know it when he chose uh, The War of the Worlds to read live yeah. on air. So it's it's a story that you've probably heard by now, but as the legend goes, uh, The War of the Worlds broadcast, that's the thing that brought Orson Welles all this worldwide fame and prestige as well as causing a ton of controversy for the newscast-style performance. He actually had people fooled that there was actually an alien invasion (laughs) taking place in America. And as we sit here in 2020, I think that's either due or something we can wistfully think about. But after the broadcast, Hollywood, who had been making overtures to Wells throughout the 30s, finally offered him something he couldn't refuse, a two-picture deal with $1 million worth of budgets and near-total artistic freedom and final cut from RKO Pictures. And this is pretty important to understand going into Mank because of how secretive they could be. Orson Welles and the Mercury Production Company working for RKO there, how 
secretive they could be and how little studio interference they got mm. because there were only two stipulations here. Number one, they had to stay under budget, 500K per film. So that was a huge budget you know, back, mm. back in the day in 1940 and right. uh, 41 when they're getting things ready here. And the studio had to green light the project at the story phase, at the, you know, at the script phase, even really before the script phase. But that was it. After that, uh, he had a lot of creative freedom, almost total creative freedom. Uh, and Mank especially benefited from this, Herman Mankiewicz. So RKO, Wells, Mankiewicz, they would all receive a lot of envy and a lot of heat from rival studios. The trades kind of ganged up on them at one point. Uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to call people out here, but a lot of the recognizable trades from today, who existed back then, mm. they wrote some scalding pieces against this outsider, this newcomer to the business who is coming in and getting this red carpet treatment. But I think most importantly, they had a lot of newly formed guilds especially the Writers Guild of, of America that right. both Mankiewicz brothers were heavily involved in taking leadership positions, influencing people because Mankiewicz, Herman Mankiewicz has been there for 15 years prior in Hollywood and his brother was starting to, his career was starting to take off as a director, a writer and a director. So these guys were influential in Hollywood and they had a lot of sway with those guilds. Well, let's not, you know, yes, it looks ridiculous in hindsight, but Think about 2020 terms, right? Mm -hmm. If if Universal or somebody took, I don't even, does radio exist anymore? Are there DJs in radio anymore? But anyway, Mark somebody. Marin. Yeah, Mark right. Maron. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like they gave, and Mark Maron just, they're going to give him total control over two pictures uh, with final cut and everything. We, we would have criticized that too. Like, what the hell are you doing? Especially RKO was one of the major players at the time. So I think the criticism probably was at least somewhat justified to be inquisitive about the decision making by RKO but clearly uh Wells you know came through for them to say the least with this one yeah he had again yeah. the roller coaster uh, career which is a lot of fun right. to cover and Fair. read about a lot of books a lot of curriculums are based on <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Orson Welles, so we don't have to get into all of it, but, you know, kind of give you the Manx study guide here. Yeah. Uh, it's, def it's definitely important. So as Wells himself would tell it in a 1960 interview, you can find this on YouTube, quote, financially, the deal wasn't extraordinary at all. I had total control, so much so that the pieces of film shown at the end of day's work couldn't be seen by anyone, and indeed the film itself couldn't be seen until its release. I got that good of a contract because I didn't want to make a film. In my case, I didn't want money. I wanted authority, so I asked the impossible, hoping to be left alone. And at the end of a year's negotiation, I got it, simply because there was no vocation there. My love for films only began when we started work. And really, that's just a man living the American dream, is it, Mike? Like, just be, <laughs> being given the world simply because you want to not be bothered by anybody. Orson Welles, when he speaks, like half of it is hot air and half of it is just not not just any truth, but like the truth. Right. Like I, I would follow this man in, in a foxhole and out of the foxhole and, and do whatever he told me to do. All that being said, like the last time I heard him speak was the Hopper Wells thing. Mm -hmm. And he talked so much shit. It's just my God, my God, the amount of shit this man talked. So I don't know if he was a maestro with the interview and kind of you know talking it up with all that mm -hmm. bravado here or what but i i think this is heavily contested in, in terms of 
how he dealt with his freedom and in terms of what Mank is going to teach us about that artistic freedom. Yeah, well, there's three sides to every story, right? There's your side, my side, and the truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, The thing about Wells that I noticed... And I, 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 you know, I'm not a, a Wells, you know, maestro by any means, but I, I really only dove deep into him for preparing this episode thus far and getting ready to do Mank stuff. But he says stuff that's so extraordinary. It's impossible for one man to have lived that life. <laughs> Right. It's impossible right. for everything to be true, but he he has the same delivery and he's such this earnestness in his eyes and in his voice when he speaks. You want to be, you walk. You can't not believe a guy like that. He's just so authoritative and powerful when he speaks. It's just it's if nothing else, it's a joy to listen. He's you know, this is a, a terrible comparison, but he's like <laughs> Joey Diaz these days, you know, like Joey Diaz, the Joe Rogan guy. He tells these stories and, you know, they have to be BS for the most part, but right. you just want to listen to it. He would hold court and we would right. just obviously listen uh, and, and be riveted. And I, I was riveted for the last few documentaries. I mean, they're still making documentaries of just Orson, well ta- mm-hmm. Orson Welles talking, essentially. Right. So, I mean, it, I totally agree. Anyway, well, we're going to have to sift through some of the stuff. So I'm trying to get the people ready for it. Look, uh, when he started this two-picture deal for RKO, he kind of stumbled out of the gate, and it was a blessing and a curse. Like, he tried three uh, projects, uh, the the most notable of which was Heart of Darkness, which he had read on the radio. I think he did a play version of it, but uh, he wanted to do Heart of Darkness, Mike, which eventually became Apocalypse Now, Mm -hmm. shot completely from a first-person POV. (laughs) Would you have watched that? Film? This is what I'm talking about, man. And we're going to get to a couple things where it's just like Wells was doing, for all the bluster you want to say he came equipped with. He was actually pulling stuff off and trying to do things mm-hmm. that 80 years later, 60 years later, we were just fawning over directors for trying. Like, OK, so Orson Wells had the first Call of Duty video game, basically, is what you just told me. Right. Yeah. Like, what was that movie? Do, what yeah. Was that? He wanted to do a movie for uh, it was. um. Darn it. I couldn't watch it because I wanted to nuke. Upload? Was that it? Upload? No, not upload. Anyway, it was first person fighter. Yeah, and I, I got I, nauseous. Just came I watched... out a couple years ago, but yeah, I'm sure it was cool. But like, I just couldn't do it. Like, I can barely do a Paul Greengrass movie these days. So. <laughs> you know what I want is I want Apocalypse Now from Marlon Brando's first person POV. Ew. So it's just shadow for half the film. <laughs> Gross. Just mutterings, just like on the universe. <laughs> exactly. That's apparently what he did. Anyway, film sets from hell with swell was a good mm-hmm. episode, Mike. Yes. But uh, as Orson Welles developed uh, his projects here and kind of failed to, he also received like a crash course in film production, having nightly screenings alongside all of the esteemed crew people of the RKO lot. I mean, he essentially manned a screening room and had, you know, a different crew person every night uh, take a screening in and tell him how each and every shot was done and and, 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 and all the techniques that, he, that a man can learn in a nightly film school there from Dr. Caligari and German Expressionism to the work of uh, American filmmaker, his favorite American filmmaker, John Ford, who would ironically beat him at the Oscars, Michael. Mm. But that was just his every night, his every day. And this man had a ridiculously crazy work ethic. His every day was in writer's rooms. 
and the favorite writer his favorite writer that he met that he hit it off with most of course was herman j mankiewicz the infamous script doctor in hollywood from paramount to mgm Uh, at this point i think this was his third or fourth studio and uh he worked on wizard of oz a lot of his stuff has gone uncredited but he worked on wizard of oz famously he wrote pride of the yankees he wrote a lot of comedies back in the day and as we'll discover the how and why in mank the other screenplay credit here of citizen kane went to herman mankiewicz who along with wells would win the only of nine oscar nominations this was the only win for best original screenplay yeah, and if you don't want to sit through the the Mank movie on Netflix to get the entire backstory or, or listen to Mike and I, there's a five-minute <laughs> segment on YouTube from Drunk History from Comedy Central that I'm sure goes into just as great as detail as any of us will. So, all right, question, Mike. We're, we're back in the times where, you know, the Hollywood system was set up where writers are churning out scripts to go into production multiple times a year. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at Mankiewicz's CV on IMDb, it's unbelievable the, the amount of movie and the amount of work he was able to churn out. And we he's still involved with these hits. Are writers more prone to come up with something that hits the zeitgeist if they just keep pushing out work? Or are these long delays where you're gestating and spending years on just one project something that's more likely to lead to something that, that really lands with a lot of people, you think? So what's really cool to learn about old-timey Hollywood is that they brought in a lot of New York journalists. Right into these writers rooms and these guys were so prolific because they're writing however many articles a day for all of those publications back in new york and they're just seasoned vets who just come up with content like crazy back in new york so it was a recruiting frenzy especially uh in any writer's room that herman mankiewicz was a part of he would bring a lot of his buddies in because he was this kind of a senior member at that at that stage of his career mm-hmm. and he was, of course, another guy who could hold court in any room and direct a lot of people in terms of, you know, b- being the loudest, the most audacious, the funniest, the smartest guy in whatever room he was in. And you'll, you'll see it in the movie. But a lot of those people in any of his writer's rooms were his people. So that that definitely became like a modern television writer's room mentality factory almost where they had however many people on every single movie eight or nine screenwriters and how however many of them got credit however many of them just were script doctors at that point so and that's it, the next question. I mean, it makes you wonder how many, you know, who are the lost icons of Hollywood who never really, who always kind of right. were attached to these projects and ended up going unnoticed or uncredited for one reason or another before we, you know, before agents came into the game and made sure and, everybody always got credit. And Pauline Kale, when she wrote the Raising Cain book, she did it out of this discovery that Herman J. Mankiewicz actually wrote most of the movies that she loved from that time period so it was like you know she she watched the movies of that time period and then discovered years later that the script doctor behind them all or that the guy that worked on the dialogue of most of these comedies was in fact mank well to get back to to what wells did on this project and as much of credit that mank uh does get and he's the lone oscar winner if you listen to wells speak about his time in making this movie citizen kane i mean here you are mike reciting chapter and verse the countless hours orson wells had to spend tolling away and how to learn the craft prior to Mm -hmm. shooting a single frame of the film 
And yet, to hear it from the mouth of the man himself, Orson Welles is on record saying repeatedly in various interviews that his two biggest assets in shooting Citizen Kane were ignorance of what can't be done and the ability of Welles or any filmmaker to learn all that is necessary about camera work in just half a day. And he was quite adamant about that, saying, you know, I had the greatest cameraman in the world, and, and he told me everything I ever needed to know about cameras in half a day, as I could to anyone who's intelligent. So, I mean, that's equal parts, you know, infuriating in its bluster and inspirational in its approach, I guess. But we've studied this uh, phenomena from phenomenons like Mr. Orson Welles there. Mm. How, how's my copy working for me today? I didn't even <laughs> write that down. It just came to mind. I'm channeling Mr. Mankiewicz. No. Uh We've we've seen this before with Tarantino, right, in the mid '90s, and kind of the indie film boom, and he didn't know enough, right, to about the like regular. I think there's going tons to that. I really think yeah. there's tons to that. If you you know, if you don't know what you can't do, you really aren't inhibited by by what's not possible. Innovation is sparked out of that. Yeah. Or if you just have a basic knowledge, but you want to do something new, and you're determined to make something new happen, then yeah, I mean he's. He was going to do a first-person shooter <laughs> based on the Joseph Conrad book, Orson right. Welles. And, and then at the same time, yeah. it's a little insulting to, you know, the Deaconses of our world where you say, oh, you can learn anything about shooting a movie in half a day. That's all you need. <laughs> Look, I mean, it's worked really well. And it's, it's you know, people have fallen flat on their face. I mean, that's what film festivals, I mean, that, that, that's half the excitement of every film festival, I would mm. say. So, I mean, we're going to continue to come across it. But, uh, look, I, we're going to get into William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies in a minute, I think, with script thoughts. But just to kind of do one final tease uh, for all you guys, I, I would look those names up. I would read, like, a Wikipedia page for Herman J. Mankiewicz, for Citizen Kane, perhaps. I mean, we're going to try and get a lot of the study guide stuff done done for you today in today's listen but it'll definitely deepen the the mank watching experience if you have a clue about all the stuff going on back in ni the 1940s and if and it'll really help if you understand the politics going on that pre-world war ii political scene mm. in, in california i mean that's that's probably the coolest thing we're going to talk about like the I, I i hope you'll love this movie more than than most mike because of you know, the, the the complicated politics involved here. But uh... can, I, can I tell you how stupid I am? Honestly, <laughs> like that? I was uh, in doing research for this episode and talking about and researching the history about between Hearst and between Orson Welles and Mankiewicz's involvement. I was thinking I, I legitimately this isn't a joke. This is an irony. This is just stupid stupidity. <laughs> I, I found myself thinking, wow, someone should really make a movie about the making of Citizen Kane. <laughs> Unironically, I had that thought to myself, and then it took me like a good 30 seconds to be like, wow, I'm a dumb. <laughs> well, you were blinded by your grudge, and right now you have a grudge against be. 2020 new movies for some reason, because they're not A-plus movies, and they're only B-plus movies. And it's still bitter about Parasite, and it's carrying over, let's be honest. Yeah, let's, let's, let's just be honest with people. You're still... Which is, uh, there's there's a movie that just reminded me a lot of Parasite. And when we watch it over the coming weeks, you're going to be like, you're going to be enraged. Great. Right? I don't even want to say. Great. <laughs> this year's say. gone swell enough. <laughs> it's going to happen. Anyway, uh, I think you're crazy. Thank and you. And we've established this. And uh, 
let's keep reviewing this movie that uh, gets very political. All right, let's get into the plot premise and our uh, our expectations and history with this film. So we have the premise from IMDb reads: Following the death of publishing tycoon Charles Foster Kane, reporters scramble to uncover the meaning of his final utterance of Rosebud. All right, so. Our expectations here, and I think that the question I'm most curious about is what was your Citizen Kane journey? Because mine was basically, and I I wrote down a lot of shit here, but I think I could sum it up like this. I have liked it more and more as I've gotten older. Uh, How how have you viewed Citizen Kane? Because you saw it years ago as well. Yeah, I I, I have no memory of my first, other than I knew I have seen it. But my first watch of it, I think I was maybe fifth or sixth grade or something like that. I was not obviously prepared to, to handle something like Citizen Kane. So this was really my first like actual grown ass man watch of it. And it's just it's terrifying in a way. I mean, it's a, it's a spectacular marvel yeah. for what it was at the time. I mean, if you think about really that this came out a year before the U.S.'s involvement in World War II, for Christ's mm-hmm. sake. Mm-hmm. It's just unbelievable what Orson Welles was able to accomplish, and it still holds up today. It's still a highly watchable, a highly addictive story, but what's terrifying is its relatability. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the holding the mirror up to society and seeing the, the influences about what's going, you know, the, the, the parallel universes between a cult of personality and the political sphere, it's just it's unbelievable how well this translates to 2020, especially. We've just lived through the fulfillment right. of the prophecy of Charlie Foster Kane right. slash William Randolph Hearst. Right down to the lack of self-awareness. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't I don't think we've done a retrospective that has resonated or reverberated throughout history or into our modern day politics and headlines like Citizen Kane. I mean, the the staying power here is irksome. <laughs> yes. Quite, I mean, it's 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 unlike it's it's quite quite unlike I think anything we've touched so far, because this movie is almost a, a century old at this point, And if it came out today, we would say, wow, what a deft touch. What a what an unbelievable take on Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the characters would look a little bit different. Right. Um, <laughs> But you're right. I think it would be. I think it would be almost like uh, a spoof. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if it would be taken seriously. I, I right. genuinely do because it's so right on. Not only the the, the Trumpness of it, but the dissection, the uh, the interpretation of Fox News, uh, the the just the absolute power corrupts absolutely aspect and storyline to it. The the man who controls the media controls the mess. It, it's just so unbelievable how well it resonates. Well, all the yellow journalism of the William Randolph Hearst days, to use that historical, mm-hmm. uh, you know, AP test uh, term. Right there. I, I mean, that is what we're dealing with now right. with partisan media, and it's and it terrifies me. But uh, right, same. Yeah, I mean, Charlie Foster Kane is this media tycoon in the twenties and thirties, just like William Randolph Hearst was, uh, and just like jo- Joseph Pulitzer was. Now, Samuel Insull and Robert McCormick were also. Uh, referenced by a lot of uh, scholars on this movie. I, I forgot to look up where they were from, but there were other uh, business tycoons. McCormick and... has great spices for chicken. I oh, imagine okay. it's the exact same man. 
why why their names don't resonate with me just shows us all how ignorant uh, we are and how you're not correcting me now because I didn't look up that up. I just uh, cited also. chicken spices, Mike. You did, you did. But look, uh, Wells' own biography is is heavily debated here on how much that factors into the Foster Kane character as well. Yeah, and not according to Wells. I mean, he's been asked point blank if he thought this was any self-referential or self-biographical takes or a part of him within the Charles Foster Kane character, and he has been adamant again in interviews saying he doesn't understand people who compare the character of Kane to the life lived by Wells himself, however, Mike. Mm, uh, uh, that is a dump truck full of salt backing up, about to dump it on both of us. Uh, mm-hmm. Look, I mean, The Battle Over Citizen Kane is an Oscar-nominated documentary that I think is available to everybody right now on YouTube, mm-hmm. at least most of it. Like, there's playlists that you can click on. I don't know if I'm supposed to shout those out when they're just free on YouTube, but it yeah, is there. Yeah, they're available. We we're just, we we don't watch them, but if somebody with well, less we, ethics wanted to, yeah. It's out there. You just watch it. I just did it. I watched it. And it basically is the perfect make study guide, even more perfect than today's episode, perhaps, because it goes through like that relationship between mm-hmm. Hearst and Davies and Mankiewicz and and all of it and certainly Wells's biography is cited and connected to Charlie Foster Kane a time and again. I mean, they share similarities. The post-college European experience is similar between them. Some issues of inheritance and privilege, even though, of course, it's not on the scales of a tycoon. I mean, uh, Wells did come from a wealthy family. I mean, the early 20s businessman slash prodigy status, that was true for Hearst taking over the the newspaper from his father, the San Francisco newspaper. And it was true, of course, for Wells with how he, you know, hit Broadway by storm and was, you know, viewed as a, as a conqueror, conqueror of Broadway, like in his mid twenties. So they both had this roller coaster relationship with money as well. So I think, I think a lot of the criticism that that movie got it wrong, it just, I don't get it because I feel like, I feel like there's a million different uh, similarities, which, again, is kind of a testament to how Wells is very involved in the writing and the construction of this story, too. Well, I, I suppose at least one differentiation, and to, to Wells's credit, as soon as he said he doesn't see it, he's willing to at least be you know, self-reflective and say, now maybe that's a blind spot of mine, at least in the interview that I'm <laughs> citing here. So, you know, he at least knows that he could be a willfully clue. blind to it, you know? A clue. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, this guy, I love him. I love him to death. But he he talks a lot of shit throughout all I, his interviews. Mike, I found myself yeah. guffawing at some of the stuff he was saying because he says, like, insults are just matter of, like, stuff people shouldn't say about the mm-hmm. holiest of holies. And he says them so bluntly and matter-of-factly. It's just like, I'm in awe of the audacity of the man, which clearly he was full of as we talk more about the making of this movie in particular. And it's probably the reason why him and Mank became like best friends and then arch nemeses. Yeah, yeah, I would <laughs> like think within so. Weeks. Yeah. Anyway, uh, back to Hearst, which same comparison you can make with Mank because Hearst was that type A personality if there ever was one as well. <laughs> but I mean, he built a newspaper media empire with Hearst Communications on the yellow journalism, all that sensationalism. Uh, that he tried to pivot into a political career. He was twice elected to Congress, unlike the character in in this movie. But uh, he lost campaigns like he lost campaigns for mayor of New York City, governor of New York, a rather rather costly run for uh, for president. And of course, William Randolph Hearst is known for his personal castle, his fiefdom essentially, because he bought a property 
half the size of Rhode Island in the state of California, San Simeon, uh, that is essentially the the Xanadu from this movie. I'm amazed we've gone almost a half hour or so into this episode without either one of us cracking the Xanadu joke. <laughs> I haven't seen all of that movie. I kind of shut that off. Xanadu! Pretty, yeah, pretty quickly, the, <laughs> the, the musical there. I, although I'm, I'm always tempted to just watch it and just see what a disaster it really is. Hey, those were the days, though, huh, Mike, when somebody who was ill-equipped to run for office didn't win the election for office that that was the time my god I, 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 it, the more i look at today's politics too the sca- more scared i am that like the equivalent of mark Marin is gonna run and yeah take over the what like i mean we're, we're we're a couple years away from president rock i think president <laughs> could be uh look hearst also becomes a major factor in hollywood he is best buddies with mgm louis b mayer that uh complicated fellow let's just say uh but he becomes a hollywood producer because he's doing all the newsreels and the short films before the movies uh the the hearst communications company and 710 i believe i counted them of the 722 god man you counted those no it's easy all you gotta do is scroll up and they they say 12 so i just counted the other 12 that weren't the that didn't have the caption short next to their name God bless you. Oh, Anyways, you ca- I see. I see. Okay. All right. That makes more sense. I thought hard. you counted the 700 of them. That would be insane. <laughs> Almost as crazy as I said you were a few minutes ago. But he was the producer and executive producer of about a dozen feature films, many of which starred Marion Davies, mm-hmm. uh, a.k.a. Amanda Seedfried in the upcoming movie, a.k.a. kind of the Susan Alexander character yeah. uh, in Citizen Kane here. So that's going to be a major factor that we're probably going to get into a little more in spoilers. But... Uh, uh, he loved that gal. Let's just say that right here, uh, Mr. Hurst and Mrs. Davies. Yeah, so that story, again, more importantly, as I discovered and screamed at Mike when we were f- first piecing together this miniseries, William Randolph Hearst has 722 credits on IMDb. It's it's a crazy number, but it's because of all the shorts. <laughs> right, be, he's right. the most prolific short filmmaker in IMDb history, perhaps. But if you it's think about the news. media that was coming out at that time and how limited, you know, the limited channels that were available for him to have control in his name on that many of them, on top of the uncredited, you know, what's not on IMDb as far as uh, what he approves to go in his own newspapers and whatnot. I, I mean, the guy was. It's it's almost eerie and impossible that he's basically become oh that guy that orson Welles made his movie about (laughs) it's very ironic dramatic irony is going to come up a lot in this episode and that is certainly true uh also it's scary to think that you know most people in between their double features and pre you know going into their their uh movie watches took in fake news newsreels isn't that scary (laughs) Like, if you think about it. Oh, Jesus Christ. Isn't that insane? Like, this, it, this is a bad idea to do that. If you knew this is what this movie had in store, and you're just letting me, just suckering me into it, this is just such a terrifying ordeal. It, it really is almost refreshing, though, isn't it? Because it we're not living in worse times. Like, it was worse back then in the 1940s. It, it, can I take a silver lining? Across was it? Off? Was it? Re- I mean, with uh, with, with the amount of fake news and the, the subjective headlines being presented as objective fact in this day, was it really? You think? I hope it was. Well, I'm just saying, you know, you have to seek out partisan media. But before, if you went to a movie, you would get, like, a mm. newsreel of partisan mm. media. 
Ugh. what I'm trying to get across. Ugh. Okay, I, I, I'll, I'll hold on to that hope. Anyway, Bill Nye, the science guy, plays Upton Sinclair, the writer of The Jungle, who was trying to take on Hearst back in those times. So that is another uh, Wikipedia page for you guys to peruse. Amazing. Other than that, I think, uh, I think it's a fascinating world of, of 1940s Californian politics where you have Democrats that can be welcomed to a Republican election night party that you guys are going to see pretty early on in Mank. And uh, I think uh, I think Citizen Kane is kind of, in a way, it's I mean, it's not Tammany Hall, right? I mean, it's not necessarily the guys throwing, you know, p- you know little kids with posters for one political candidate into the river. Mm. Not yet. <laughs> it's not that bad. So it's even worse as uh, the people who came up for the 1940s in terms of their politics. Right. It's even worse in the 1920s. So, again, you know, William Randolph Hearst was kind of an improvement, and I don't want to say the name Donald Trump, but is he a kind of improvement on what's going on? Oh, my God. We, I don't know where we're going. I, I, this is how my optimism walks me into a corner. Comes and back now, and bites you, yeah. Yeah, this is how it happens. But let's talk about the actual screenplay here, because, Mike, they structured this entire film on the last words of... Of the principal character who dies in the first five minutes. Well, not only that, they give away every plot point and every beat in the first, mm-hmm. you know, 15 or 20 minutes with the spinning headlines and the exposition dumped by the voiceover. Like, there's no reason that should work as well as it does. Like, you you, you basically get the story and the A through line in the first 20 minutes. You get that synopsis immediately, and then it's all about the why and Mm -hmm. discovering why everything happened and trying to understand this person that is clearly based on a major power broker in the, in the country's history at that time, uh, William Randolph Hearst and, and, and people like him. So I think the, the public's appetite to understand a person like that is built into this story. So if you kind of use the narrative device of his last words and what his last words might have meant, uh, it really is a fascinating, a fascinating uh, story structure. And talk about being ahead of its time. And, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff as far as cinematography goes was, but certainly in terms of screenwriting too, you know, we, throw all sorts of adulation at the likes of Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan for taking their their story beats and showing them out of order and going back and forth. And here Orson Welles was doing it, you know, 60, 80 years before anyone was. It's an, it's perhaps the greatest MacGuffin that actually gets explained ever, right? I mean, I mean, is it a MacGuffin? I mean, I don't know. It's a mystery. Yeah. I, I it, it's, it's, and it's left open. You don't even get a hard answer. I mean, you get an answer as to what it is, but you don't get the interpretation of it. It's still left up. And for the movie to be that appealing still all these years later and talked about as in, in, in the air that it is as one of the greatest of all times, he does something. There's something certainly at the, the center of this movie that stands the test of time and is true when you put it up and talk about how great it is. There's something well, to that. Let me circle back to the point I was trying to make before, because, yeah, I mean, Republicans are invited to Democratic uh, election parties and vice versa in these time in these times. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is a screenwriter who does not share the same political views as Mr. Hearst trying to humanize him to the extent that he 
builds this entire backstory around the man. And it's, it's, it's not just an F you hit piece. I mean, we we saw right. it, we saw this movie made in with vice Adam McKay's vice, but not like this. I mean, mm. there's, there's a Freudian tra- tragedy in both. There's a satirical character study in both, but there's not the rounded nuanced character arc that, Jack Fincher's Oldman slash Mank, and of course Orson Welles and Mankiewicz's uh, uh, Charlie Foster Kane. There, there, there's not the the same kind of arc that they they have that uh, some of the modern kind of political pieces do not have. Do not. Yeah, share. he's he's not unsympathetic, and like you you do feel you're allowed to feel for Charles Foster Kane in this, but you're not. They still do a great job of keeping you at arm's length. Right. And the, the jumping POV is something that uh, a lot of people have praised in the past. There's almost like this POV that you don't really understand. Like, you know it's a journalist, but you're, you're then going through the memories of all of these other characters in the story. Right, and right. it's a flashback-based structure, story structure, that we've seen work before. And we'll see work again in Mank, which is very cool that they share the same story structure. But we have seen fail and fail miserably with Hillbilly Elegy, which we just saw <laughs> last week. That's a good point. It's also It also helps that every time there was a flashback in this, you, you keep with the character who's having the flashback. Mm-hmm. So you, you have a stable, you know, as, as unreliable as the narrator was, because there's a billion different narrators, you have a stable force. You have the totem grounding you to reality. You're not, you know, it's not a flashback just to move the story forward. It's a flashback for a retelling from that person's POV. And, and a lot of times in modern times, when you're using that flashback structure, the, the character gets lost in the sauce. And it's just a way to move the plot forward. Uh, again, there's a, so many things that are ahead of its time. And again, I, I cannot emphasize enough. This movie came out a year before we got in World War Two. That seems impossible to me. And I'm really proud of myself because I am like three months since I've smoked a cigar. And if I'm not going to smoke a cigar after watching Citizen Kane three more times and make however many times I'm going to watch that before it's done, I'll never smoke a cigar again. You're going to move on to corn cob pipes is all it is. I'm just saying I've officially quit. I'm not hankering that bad. Or maybe this is a a cry for help right now because I'm... (laughs) Fiending. One or the other. One or the other for sure. The Joseph Cotton flashbacks. I, I, I let's just say I itched my 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 uh I scratched the back of my neck during yeah. most of those scenes. Let's just you had that. you had a little uh, a little tinkle there. <laughs> anyway, Mike, uh like I don't think we need to talk about the production values for too long. This no. will be semi brief yeah. because again, entire curriculums are based right. on the production va- uh, values of Citizen Kane. That, but, and I'm, uh, I have to hear one more story about how that table in the kitchen during the flashback split apart so the camera could pull back and it went back together. I'm gonna lose my mind. <laughs> it's really cool the first time, but you're right. There's like 15 stories each. We, we right. hear those anecdotes all the time. They're very innovative in what they did uh best set production design in film history perhaps some of the greatest uh mise-en-scene that i've ever seen i mean night i mean you're getting a, a a big budget but it's also looking like a 1930s billionaire's treasure trove throughout this story no wide lens i don't know where the hell they found a fireplace and, and a, i don't know why an architect would make 
a building with windows that tall and that high off the ground where you can't see through them. But I, I you know, for whatever reason, it worked and the way Wells shot it was unbelievable. But because yeah, they I, can. Yeah, right. But it makes could. no it makes no practical sense. <laughs> I understand the difference in perspective. We have Wells. You have Kane walking towards the back and he's getting lost in the scene. He's becoming smaller in the world. I understand the subtext, but yeah. just logistically having a building that looks that way. Serves zero purpose. <laughs> Paparazzi, the architect, just got anything stamped you know, that he wanted to get stamped. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, as far as production values go and, and, and production design specifically, it's it's unbelievable how immersive this film is. Again, for something from 1941. The camera work is superb, as you yes. mentioned. The lighting. I mean, I'm grateful for some of the shadows because some of the makeup is and hairstyling is awful. Yeah. And it's not necessarily their fault because it's probably the best they could do at the time. And I'm, I'm not going to really harp on it, but it, it really it was bad. Like, I mean, you could basically see like the bald cap stretched and like mm-hmm. one wrinkle mm-hmm. awkward fold in his forehead. Yeah, he almost doesn't have any wrinkles in his forehead. It was almost not too tight that uh, you <laughs> didn't see any wrinkles in the old man's cue ball head. Right. Uh, I mean, it's really awkward. Uh, it is. It is glaring in a couple scenes <laughs> as old man Kane. I, I will say that's kind of, differentiated by how Wells's acting was as the old man, at least his physical acting. I thought he stumbled around and was able to portray himself himself as an elderly cane quite well uh, physically, well, you know, stumbling around, walking around, throwing the tantrum where he does. Not that that's giving anything away. As far as the lighting goes, uh, Wells was on record again saying how he didn't know what a director wasn't supposed to do, so he was there every day at the start of shooting, you know, <laughs> framing the lighting and getting the blocking right and getting the shadows just right, and this cameraman would kind of let him do it and then would reconfigure it as he saw fit. So it was kind of a whole total team effort there, and the shadows were very important to this film. The man didn't sleep, which yeah. is why, as much as I love Pauline Kael and as much as I love the story of Mank and I love all the winks to the fact that, um, you know, Herman J. Mankiewicz wrote most of the screenplay, mm-hmm. there's no way understanding who Orson Welles was. Right. There's no way that D- he didn't have a major hand in shaping right. the story. Right. And I think I think it's a lot of fun to kind of, you know, do, go through all of the fan fiction that uh, that, that was a... Uh, as a piece written entirely by Mr. Herman. Mm-hmm. Agree. Agree. 100% agree. His fingerprints are all over this in one way or another. Now, we did have some awkward edits, even though some of the editing was extraordinary. <laughs> so, so look, I don't want to like make it sound like it's a bad thing, right? And, yeah. and I, I truly think, especially for the time, like, we're, we're looking at this with 2020 eyes, people. Right. Like, this movie is unbelievable to have been made when it was. I, have I gotten that point across yet? Did, did I mention that it was made in 1941? Um, right. So the editing is quite good. However... <laughs> <laughs> One scene in particular in which Kane is yelling at Getty and chasing him out of uh, what turns out to be his mistress's apartment uh, or hotel room or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a scene where we're looking as Getty's is facing the camera, we're looking over his shoulder to see uh, Kane yelling at him from the banister down up the stairs beyond him. And it's. Just clearly not Orson Welles. I mean, it's like Family Guy style bad that that ended up being let go and unseen and put into what is, you know, arguably one of the greatest pictures of all time. So to be fair, you know, 20 years in the future when Batman is punching a shark off of the uh, the helicopter. Yes, (laughs) it's quite good, especially comparatively and relatively. I agree. However, it was Family Guy laugh out loud. Wait a minute. 
did I just see what I think I saw? I have to go back and rewatch this and freeze the frame. Laughable to me. And yes, we both realize that in that scene, you know, I think uh, Mr. Wells broke his back. Right. Like, <laughs> he fell <laughs> off. He was so overzealous that when he ran up to the balcony screaming at Mr. Gettys, he literally somersaulted and fell on his back, broke his back, spent the rest of the movie in a body cast. <laughs> Oh, poor guy. He must have been a joy to deal with then, huh? Brutal. Just <laughs> brutal. But, all right, so the sound, which is going to be something we talk a lot about in Mank, uh, Mike, very 1940s, but I do want to shout out Mr. Orson Welles' deep voice that carries forth and doesn't sound like the generic, hey, Mr. 1920s, <laughs> everybody, Kappa, see, everybody sound the, the, the same. You know, so when Ma Rainey's voice is unique and when Orson Welles' voice is unique, it means something to me because it's it's distinguishable. I think the sound mixing was outstanding. And I know mm-hmm. it's not something we comment on often, but it, again, for the time, I'm just, just assume every sentence I say is for the time before <laughs> it. But you look at movies from back then in the 50s and 60s even, and the voiceover is so obvious And that's really not the case here. And you have scenes where a lot of people are talking at once in this. You have scenes where multiple people are singing. And while people are singing, there's a conversation being held between two men in the foreground of the stop. There's a lot of mixing of sound. And it all comes off as if it's actually being shot in real time. I mean, you don't really, you aren't really taken out by the voiceovers much at all uh, in in post. So I think that's incredible. I, I agree and I think the production values might somehow be underrated in many yeah, ways. Yeah, I, I agree, man. However, where I will revert back to my snarky mm-hmm. film school, wait, this is not that good, <laughs> is the performances, Mike. Because Orson Welles, yeah. I mean, judging him against our Best Actor nominees of today, yeah. it's hilariously bad in this movie. <laughs> and it is not translating his big theatrical gestures to the silver screen very well. I mean, he is chewing scenery like cud. His makeup and hair is bad to make things even worse when he's in the old guy get up. I mean, it's almost a reverse Robert De Niro from the Irishman. I would argue that Robert De Niro from the Irishman looked like he was in the body cast, but most of this movie with Orson Welles in the, uh, in the old man makeup, he's got too much movement. Like he's a 27 year old guy in this movie, 25, however old he is. I mean, he can't move like an old man. He's not using his instrument properly. Yeah. That's something we haven't even touched on yet is the fact that this man was 25 when he freaking released this thing. Never mind when he was filming it uh, and to take the shots that he did at a giant at her, who was Hearst at that age is unbelievable, but I'm not willing to go as far to say it's laughably bad, (laughs) but yes, there are certainly uh, a fair share, fair number of times of uh, what we would call overacting held to 2020 standards. I agree. If I laugh though, then it it is kind of laughably. (laughs) Anyway, look, I mean, if he took his go-to, uh, character from the his go-to actor from the theater right joseph cotton Mm -hmm. and made him a star five years earlier than when he actually became a star and gave him that role and actually just focused on the directing this is probably an even better movie like jedediah leland and joseph cotton but i mean i I don't know i look orson welles would become uh, a great movie star in his own right and it's because of this movie in many ways. And he does have his moments. He does have some great scenes that we're going to get to in a minute in spoilers. But, uh, yeah, I was very underwhelmed 
in terms of <laughs> his performance with this movie. Uh, lastly, though, Mike, I mean, what did you think of kind of the supporting cast? We have Everett Sloan as Mr. Bernstein. We have Dorothy Kamangore as Susan Alexander Kane, Joseph Cotton, as I mentioned. I think the Susan Alexander Kane character gets a bad rap. <laughs> <laughs> she's supposed to be a subpar singer and entertainer, and I thought she was great, even especially for the time again. But I, I didn't think her opera singing—not that I know, you know, good opera from bad opera. I suppose as long as you sound like you're hitting the pitch to me, I'll let it go. But if you're going to play, if the whole piece of this is that she's supposed to be bad, you know, she doesn't have to sound like she's singing in a garbage can necessarily. But I, I thought that was passable. I certainly didn't think she was bad enough to the point where she would be torn up apart by every outlet like she was in the plot. All right, here's my take. No, 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 no. I loved that old Italian uh, opera conductor. I mean, yeah. I'm pretty sure he's actually yeah. my great-grandfather. I, I, I never got it confirmed by my great-grandmother, but my God, the resemblance. <laughs> and his hair is the same fucking thinning Italian doo-wop hair as me. And just, I, I loved that man, and I loved how he... He coached her so wrong, and I agree with you. I mean, she's not that bad. I, as a DJ, as you are, the our Polish DJ, I mean, you see the potential. Like, you would let her sing a few uh, bars in, in our next theme song or whatever. Of course. I, I mean, Christ. Look, I, I can tell you some people on the top 40 list right now who I would take her over, so I don't think she was that bad at all. But I guess, you know, judging by the reactions from the gallery. Right. The movie, like, like if, if, if the guy standing on top of the catwalk there didn't plug his nose and say pu and like she wasn't if we didn't have the clues and we were just left to ourselves to judge if she was talented or not i wouldn't have known that she was supposed to be bad that is a little scary uh for all our listeners who might want to go back and listen to a best original song episode <laughs> because we did a lot but look at I me mean, every caveat when we started every one of those episodes it's like we're not really learned <laughs> right. we, in the music. Like listening to uh, music criticism. is where we come from. Yeah. yeah, I know a lot of film critics <laughs> that we like were previously music critics and then mm -hmm. became... No, that's not our origin story at all. No, no it's not. <laughs> Mike, we would say watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a, century. a fair statement, I would say. You should watch Citizen Kane at some point. <laughs> And I think it'll, it, in all honesty, I mean, it's on HBO Max for you guys right now. The battle uh, over Citizen Kane is on YouTube. Hopefully this kind of prepped you with a Mank study guide heading into Friday's release of Mank that we will study for you next week. But bottom line is, we think that uh, th this movie is, is going to deepen your experience of the David Fincher film. So it's, a wor it's worth checking out if you can. And if you like... Citizen Kane as an old, you know, if you like the 40s era and the 50s era movies, mm -hmm. get HBO Max. I mean, there's so much stuff on there. I, I'm yeah. kind of infuriated at, at how, I don't want to say bundle, you know, bungled, but at how, um, I, I guess, below average the marketing has been for what's available on there. Like, they should be hitting everyone over the head with the just wealth of content available on every outlet, YouTube and, and, and yeah. television and cable everywhere. I mean, it's it's unbelievable how if you are a fan of any entertainment, you're going to find, I think, something for your liking and, and a lot of it on HBO Max. So I just want to pass comment there. Yeah, I don't know if you did the same thing as me, but after Citizen Kane finishes, 
right? You get all the options. You right. Know, you can restart all it, but suge- you get all the yeah. options. Yeah, and I every time I finished the movie, I was like, I'll add Maltese Falcon. I'll add this. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I found myself doing Rebel that. Rebel Without a movies. Cause. Let me get into some James Dean. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Rewatch them, watch them for a couple movies that I'm embarrassed I haven't seen. To be or not to be. You ever seen that one? Well, I'm going to watch it now. <laughs> so, dude, you be better, HBO Max, or just, you know, hire us and we'll do it for you. That's right. Spoilers ahead! This is a spoiler warning. This is the spoiler section for the movie Citizen Kane. Amazingly, not a remake of it, but no, the original 1941 adaptation from Orson Welles, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar, as part of our Mank mini-series. If you've not seen the movie yet, like we just said at the end of the non-spoiler section, go hit pause, go check out HBO Max. You could watch it there right now. If you've seen the movie already, you're just curious to hear our thoughts. This is where you want to be. All spoilers for Citizen Kane, part of the Mank mini-series, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Michael, what's your dying words going to be? <laughs> uh, not the nickname for my mistress's sandwich. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably a sandwich. I mean, if uh, the way my life is going, I'm probably going to call back to a sandwich, which I got waiting for me. And because I'm through COVID and I can taste again, I'm really excited about it. So, look, this is going to be a fast spoiler section for a lot of reasons, but most of all for for sandwich reasons. <laughs> I'm glad we got that out of the way. So let's start at the end, Michael. Rosebud, what are our thoughts? Yeah, I'm really curious what your kind of uh, relationship was with the big spoiler. Because I remember seeing this movie for the first time and, you know, the wow I'm in the end quote from the Robert McKee character at the end of Adaptation. Mm-hmm. If you wow him in the end, you got a hit. I remember getting through that whole movie and being kind of underwhelmed in my snobby film school days. Like, nah, it's not that good. But then, like... Oh, I think I understand why this just uh, baffled people and dazzled people for so long. It's because they surprised me so much with that uh, reveal of the sled from the original flashback, the OG flashback from when he was a kid, and how meaningful that scene was with his parents giving him away yeah. and hearkening back to that time. And I think it's going to really factor into Mank what, what it all means to William Randolph Hearst and how... how uh, Herman J. Mankiewicz got it right about the man's lonely childhood and how that kind of drove him to become uh, what he became uh, as as a business tycoon and how lonely he became at the end of his life. I wonder how many people feel like the reveal lived up to the hype all movie because it's it's you know it's not a big twist it's not a big reveal it's kind of a letdown but it's such a subversion of expectation that's one of the things that the movie does so very well that i think that's part of the payoff and that combined with the fact that what is the exact meaning of the sled is kind of left up to interpretation you know is it a loss of innocence is it something he had because it's the last memory of his uh his real parents is it something you know just something harkening back to his childhood i think it can mean a lot of things and it's so very clever, I think. I, I I wonder if it's a disappointment or if it's a lot of a lot of people would still if they didn't know about the reveal, how it, it registers with them is my biggest okay. question. Because it's tough it's tough for me to judge because, you know, just being a, a cinephile and just being a fan of movies and obviously there's the family guy bit, but like I well, that was know, my I, question. Right. I knew what Rosebud was going in. Oh, okay. So that, that was my first question. Like, you are a connoisseur of 
I don't want to say bad comedy, but <laughs> how bad, dare you? Look, I mean, how many things have spoiled it since you know it's been out there? Right. And fifty years later, we say it all the time. I mean, if I'm spoiling a movie that's seventy years right, old, am right. I a jerk? But this is really, you know, for spoiler nuts like me, spoiler Nazis. I would, I would call myself a spoiler Nazi. <laughs> I, I, I would. I don't okay. really ascribe to National Socialism anywhere else. Uh-huh. With spoilers. I'm kind of a spoiler Nazi, and I've kind of insisted that we do a spoiler section uh in, in this podcast and then one of the few ways i've gotten my you know uh way in 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 terms of our programming but mike i think uh i think i'm really upset right now that family guy or whatever spoiled the end of that movie for you and you didn't have that moment that i seem to have when i first took in citizen yeah. King to where it was uh, it was an unhateable movie or it was an unhateable experience even, even if you thought it was like an overrated experience, when you realize that it was the sled and you're like, holy shit, this whole movie is structured around that. I was like in awe. I, I, I truly wonder how I would have, I, I mean, it was spoiled for me so long. You know what I mean? Like it was, yeah. it's not even, it's just something to me. It's always just been a part of cinema lore and trivia it's just oh yeah rosebud is the sled and it's just something everyone knew whether you had seen the movie or not so i i do wonder if i would have been let down or i just wonder what the general consensus is uh about that reveal and i'm I'm like you i'm very curious so you were otherwise roped into kind of the manic uh retelling of of the man's history and all of the gifts i mean it's a very simple plot if you think (laughs) about it it's 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 just a the gifts. I just registered what you said. Yeah, the but memes a... and the gifts that uh, would come about. <laughs> but it's a very straightforward <laughs> plot. There's not a lot of twists and turns involved in it. It's just a, a man who's you know longing for love, and he can't ever truly acquire love, and he can't. He gets corrupted. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Which I think is is a plot that, for all the research I did and all the videos I watched and all the reviews I watched, I didn't find a lot of people honing in on that aspect of it. That whole. Walter White, Mr. Smith goes to Washington yeah. type subplot, which I think is explained very well. And it's actually an example of how on the nose writing doesn't always have to be a bad thing. I mean, because the on the noseness of Wells and the Kane character explaining that he's the one that's supposed to defend the little guy at the beginning of this movie versus at the end, juxtaposed to the end of the movie where he's using it, you, you, the the media outlet and the newspaper specifically, not as a shield for the have-nots, but more as a sword to get it back as his political rivals and enemies. It's it's really a, a telling of how absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think it's, it's a wonderful, uh, does a wonderful job of doing so. Well, we've seen this with Hollywood directors where they, they'll be they'll be all about the metaphor they'll be all about the subtext and they'll weave it in and it's a tapestry right but you know when it comes time to deliver the main theme it's more important that you have clarity right and you would rather be unambiguous especially for a 1940s movie going audience that wasn't as sophisticated as as today's is but we look at the big twists from the big movies of today and i'm not going to spoil them now i mean they are kind of straightforward even though you can talk about the reverberations and the themes and the politics or whatever and, and read into them after the fact but yeah i mean i think you're you're hitting it on the head and that's what orson welles wanted he wanted anybody to watch this movie right. and to kind of get that you know catharsis in the final moment like the cur- like you see rosebud it, it burning right and you see the smoke billowing from xanadu and then that's the end of the movie done right. the whole right. mystery i mean he stretches the rubber band the entire film mm-hmm. 
until the credits, and that's a that's a masterwork. And it's it you know, we 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 do say a lot how the on the nose this is a bad thing, and it doesn't need to be. You know, Leland's straightforward. I mean, you're treated. You talk about these people as if you own them. That's the. <laughs> That's the genesis. That's the one of the themes of the movie is the blindness and the lack of self-awareness of this Kane character and why he can't truly ever get love from anybody because he doesn't really know himself. He doesn't love himself. I mean, that's yeah. it's it's as plain as day. And it's one of the quotes from Leland in the Inquirer office towards the end of the movie. So it's you, you can be plain. You could speak in layman's term. You don't have to have the most explosive and poetic of dialogue to get your message across. Well, Sorkin and Fincher are going to do it with the social network next. Yeah. And, and then, and then the, next, the next movie we study is going to be very much kind of the same story, which is I think a lot that's of fun. kind of my. Like, if you put a Sorkin script up against this one, it blows it away, right? Because there's like a melodic element to our Sorkin script. You're almost. You're talk singing. This is just. Right. People speaking, I felt like. Well, this is heavily directed, also. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the True. director is the star of the film even though the structure is a co-star of the film and that could be attributed to Mankiewicz in many ways there's not the flashy dialogue there's a couple of those scenes as we can get into best scenes now I mean the opening newsreel has a few dramatic ironies but I I really enjoy I really enjoyed that setup I thought it was very efficient even though it gave away the entire film before Mm -hmm. going into it but again it's all about the why I mean but telling off Thatcher at the news office to me was like the one one big showy scene where he's like, all right, I can waste a million dollars a year for the next 60 years. Fuck yeah. you, sir. <laughs> right, right. And that's, I mean, that's the the beginning of that arc. I mean, this is a man, this character, it's very clear that he means well. And he's, he always has that God complex, that God complex of, I need to protect the the lower class from the evils that I deem evil, right? And that's, yeah. that's a God complex, and that gets more spirally and deteriorates more as the scene, but he really does mean well. It truly is this deterioration. You know, it's not only a story of a man who's lost his innocence and, and can't be fulfilled emotionally, but it's a story of a man spiraling downward and it's plain and simple to tell. It's straightforward as all hell and seems and like that highlight it. They're not pulling punches no. like that birthday celebration and the dead-eyed chorus of all of his toadies and yep. stooges, stooges there with Joseph Cotton just not caring at all as he sings along with mm-hmm. the man's birthday celebration and all the creepy stuff going on on the stage with Orson Welles and the girls and we could, and we linger on the shot where he kisses. Oh my God, what the fuck? Yeah, that was and weird. Then, <laughs> I mean, it really was a weird scene and Orson Welles knows it's a weird scene and I'm going to kind of talk about it in worst kind of but but i think they're almost self-aware of how kind of creepy this guy is and this entire situation is by how they you know really put the satire hot and heavy in that one uh mike the political campaign montage building up to that iconic speech scene under the poster where he is just avoiding talking about his platform talking about his actual what he's actually running on and all he's doing is just going at his opponent i mean does that remind you of anybody i was just gonna say you have a guy standing in front of a mass of followers with his own last name plastered everywhere talking about how he's going you know into a microphone on a podium talking about how he's going to imprison his political rivals i mean <laughs> that's Terrifying. that could be a couple people throughout history specifically though most recently somebody from 2016 to 2020 I just, I mean, the number of parallels is just as eerie as, as it gets. Bewildering. Um, 
But look, I, I think like my favorite sequence of this particular rewatch, and it's not just because my uh, my ancestor is in the scene, <laughs> but it's everything at the opera. I loved that montage. I loved like the slow clap meme. I loved oh all of the reaction shots. I loved everything. You know the the gag of the uh, you know the opera conductor hitting his hand on the yes. uh, on the top of his little nook there. I loved the fact that she was giving it all she had and the great performance from from uh, Dorothy Comangore there. I should have looked up the pronunciation of her name. I feel bad. If it's an Italian name, I'm ashamed of myself. <laughs> but I just I, I I'm a huge fan of that, especially when you when you watch uh, Amanda Seedfried in, in Mank. And it's a different discipline, but you that that's that sequence is going to really carry over into your Mank watches people. One of the unheralded aspects of this is the balancing act that is there between the layman's term and being on the nose in dialogue and what the amount of subtext packed into every scene, because I mean that, which is the gif, the gif, gif, whatever, or the meme (laughs) with Orson Welles, just desperately. And with the resolve that I'm going to keep this applause going and people will follow me because I need to, it needs to be louder. And yet the, the subtext of the scene has all the applause has long ago stopped. And he's the only man standing and clapping, trying to be a one man rally for his bow there and trying to prove how good she was and all this. And the subtext of the guy, the teacher hitting his hand on the roof of the thing because she can't go high enough for him. And there is a ceiling to her talent. And it's just wonderful. I mean, you're right. That was one of my favorites too. Never mind how it was lit, by the way. And, and there's a lot of great scenes involving the Susan Hayward character there. And yeah, the lighting in all her scenes is pretty incredible. It's almost like he raised his game mm-hmm. for her in particular because, you know, he's by her bedside after that. I thought that was an incredible scene. I thought meeting her was kind of creepy, but also like it's a it's the creepiest meet cute in a while where he's got dirt on his. And that's his that's why I'm wondering and not to cut you off, but you say yeah. you, you think there was self-awareness. So you think he was purposefully written to be a creepy guy in that yeah, aspect? I, I feel like he disapproved Mankiewicz, disapproved of William Randolph Hearst with Marion Davies, and he strongly disapproved of that relationship. And when he showed that meat cute, he showed it to be really grimy. And Orson Welles was on board with showing that kind of almost that adds ill a new, that's true that also adds a whole new layer to the writing of this i think that's the way i read it like that was an ill-fated meeting and when you take the arc of the susan hayward character all the way to that just uh most depressing alcoholic speakeasy mm-hmm. bar where she's doing something she knows she's just not good enough at and she's dedicated her entire life to try and be good enough as a singer after going through the ordeal with William Randolph Hearst that she did. And she's stuck there just drinking her sorrows away after the man's death being interviewed. I mean, it's just, it's tra- It truly is. It it's is. Freudian. It's tragic. It's, it's crazy to think about how uh, that, that arc is being given so much detail and it matters so much to the story of Mank. It matters so much to the whole RKO pressure that they were getting from Louis B. Mayer. Because, and again, it's almost like Orson Welles when when you talk about William Randolph Hearst. Yeah, he he claimed that he was going after RKO because of the portrayal of Marion Davies as mm-hmm. Susan Hayward. 
But right. really, you know, he's kind of going after him for a myriad of reasons. He's not just going after him for and himself. trying to squelch. Yeah. yeah, of course. But I think that portrayal is very nuanced. It is a full arc. Like, she's given this intense tell-off scene that is loaded with all kinds of sadness. Like, all kinds of admissions of her own guilt. I mean, again... Uh, I mean, when she comes out and says, that's the whole game, is is you can't... You want right. love, but you can't love. I mean, if if she's given so the movie tact, in that scene, yeah. it, it, you have to have the great delivery. You have to have an actress who knows how to give that line. You have to have great direction, and you have to have built up the the entire movie to that point for that to not come off as too on the nose and too blasé and too. Did this really need this to be said? And it's just perfectly executed. It's the penultimate scene of the film. I mean, it's that whatever you whatever you want to say in the story structure uh, terminology, the the crisis of Act Three there before you get into the to the climax where where this movie is structured that goes all the way to the very end of Act Three, and it's not just an epilogue situation. This movie g- literally plays out until the very very uh, last shot of the film, or the second to last shot of the film with the rosebud thing. So I just think, I just think that is. Paying her that level of care shows the Mankiewicz-Davies relationship to be much more uh, than just a hit piece and much more than just an F.U. to both Hearst and Davies. And I, I just think that's going to that's gonna be something we talk about the next two weeks. That said, 1940 seduction is hysterical. It's it's gross. Yeah, it's it, it's it's hysterical. It's gross. It's like watching a middle school dance. I bet I can and... make you laugh. Why don't you laugh at me? What? Oh, it's awful. Uh, speaking of awful, I got a couple worse scenes. I know you don't have a lot, but... I really uh, don't. Yeah, we went through most of mine in the uh, non-spoilers. I do hope they're self-aware of the treatment of women and uh, probably less so the minorities and upper, underrepresented groups here. I mean, it's just dated. It's reprehensible at times. Hopefully it's self-aware, like I said, but we're going to have a critique coming in Mank that is maybe too subtle. But it's certainly guilty feeling, and it is condemning, uh, and maybe not as much on first glance. But when you rewatch Mank, and you think about Joe Mankiewicz's uh, the ugly rumors surrounding his biography, I mean, he had a lot of Weinstein uh, casting call rumors about his name Ugh. and many contemporaries uh, in that uh, biography, that Brothers Mankiewicz biography that I read. And I don't know what's true or not. I'll just I'll just say, but I mean, Joseph Mankiewicz will have some lines in this uh, Man- upcoming Mank movie where you're like, huh, maybe that's an fu to him yeah. in a way. And, and I mean, not to give anything away, but does the movie address it head on? No, it, it's very oblique. That's uh, why I'm saying this. No this critique yeah, is oblique, no and maybe it shouldn't have been. Maybe that should have been on the nose. But it, it's the same with this film in many ways. I, I would say. I mean, not that it's excusable, but it's just what wasn't shown in the yeah. 40s and 50s. So I, I didn't. Yes, it's disappointing. Of course it is. And you could say that with regards to diversity and equality shown on screen as well. And yeah, it's it's terrible. But that's what it always was. Right. I mean, that's you know, I feel like we would go blue in the face if we talk about movies from 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way through. I don't know, 2016, 15, <laughs> when yeah. we talk about representation uh, issues and issues of power dynamics in film. But I, I do want to lead with that, and I do want yeah. to mention No, no, it. it's, it's absolutely worth mentioning. I agree. We're talking about a film that uh, reverberates till today. Well, this is an area where it could clearly falls short and yep. has no clue what it's or talking maybe about. Or it, maybe, it, maybe it reverts too well still to modern day, you know? I mean, oh, in Jesus. a way, it's just gross. Yeah. 
That's a way to think about it as yeah. well. Uh, otherwise, I mean, I'm going to kind of list these quick because, again, it's a 1940s movie. It's a guy's directorial debut. I mean, he has some gaffes in this film. Like, the zoom in on his face saying Rosebud in the beginning is kind of funny. It's stupid. <laughs> Rosebud. Come what on. a mustache. What a stash. <laughs> and I guess that's a tribute to the uh, makeup department that they made that stash look real. But it was probably a real stash. The man had a stash. Anyway. You think so? You think that was real? Yeah, I don't know. I it looked okay. I don't remember, but it was a goofy ass edit. It was, it was. like going from that wide to that tight, yeah, really yeah. quick was was a bit alarming. Uh, anyway, the reaction shot of Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, there after he takes over the newspaper, it's like Xena Warrior Princess, bad, where he's just like, <laughs> Yeah, I'm okay, yeah, maybe. Are we still rolling? <laughs> hey. Yeah. Worst scene, worst shot of the film of of a lot of films. Let's just say, <laughs> uh, Thatcher's makeup just kind of ruined his whole character for me. Like his bald cap is absurd. Which was worse, his or old man Kane's? Old old man Kane's pretty bad, but it is just like a condom <laughs> on the top of his head. Ridiculous. <laughs> Here, put this on. <laughs> Anyway, put it on what? Uh, Everything old man Wells does in terms of his movements is kind of silly, but I I mean, the gravitas is there, and we do have some good scenes. And old people move sillily. (laughs) Right. But when he's destroying that room, hopefully in a body cast, because, like, I don't understand what he's doing with his (laughs) movements in that film. Like, he is Godzilla. Right, well, in the and that's why I movie. thought I gave that praise in the non-spoiler section because I was imagining my grandfather, my grandfather, if he was to destroy a room, I think that's yeah. how it'd be close to how he moves around. Well, you are on Mr. Wells's uh, team here in terms of the praise. <laughs> Me, I'm looking at it, and I am going to be using that gif as often as I can. Every Fair. time Mank, every time Mank loses an award, I am going to put out that Citizen Gain gif of him destroying that room, and I'm not going to be apologetic about it at all. Oh, I can't wait. Something positive came from this then. <laughs> that gif is my favorite. Anyway, that's that's all I got, Mike. Do you have any other worst scenes? No, I mean, look, the, the, the bald cat the editing at times this is all stuff that it's not going to be enough to take you out of the movie anyway i was just more so just impressed with this for a number and it's a 25 year old to have the audacity for a 25 year old 24 year old to go after a guy the the standing of william randolph hearst even though he's always said you know it's not exactly hearst blah 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 we know it is and to really have history treat this as the man who made a guy like Hearst be the guy that Orson Welles made that movie about is just unbelievable. I I said it to you. It'd be analogous to like, you know, if Jordan Peele's grandkid one day comes out and turns Donald Trump into the guy that that guy made a song about once. That's basically what happened here. It's just unreal. Yeah, Yeah, that was a great text. One of your best texts in a while (laughs) that you sent me the other day. And then I was really upset that we couldn't like record right after that. I was like, wait, wait, wait. No, we can't record. I was, I was ready. I was ready to record, but then our powers went out. It's been unbelievable. This year has been just we've, crazy. We've had so much bullshit going on this last week. Otherwise, I mean, we wanted to do a Hillbilly Elegy episode just yeah, because we needed to. Anyway. Well, that's Ron Howard's fault, not ours. Yeah. All right. That's true. But also, you lost your voice. and <laughs> I got sick. Hillbilly Elegy literally made me sick. <laughs> so question for you, Mike, before we wrap up here. Yeah. Is this the greatest directorial debut of all time? 
somebody should make a movie about making this movie. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is the best directorial debut of all time, and it was really cool in terms of the premise to have Orson well or, or have a uh, Hopper Wells because he made like the next best debut of all time, mm. right? And have them interview each other in a documentary. You would think would would work, but uh, no, it didn't. I mean, maybe <laughs> I'll have to rewatch it. I don't know. That was a dumb documentary. The worst watching my. Film you had festival. so much venom for it here. Too. Oh, it was awful! It was just nonsense. He was talking nonsense for three hours, not two hours, three hours. <laughs> Well, I, I wish I had something that could make it better, but I don't. The Other Side of the Wind, also. Um, they mm. should have shelved it for another hundred mm. years. <laughs> Throw that one in the fire and let the smoke billow. Maybe The Magnificent awful. Ambersons is better? The Magnificent Andersons, of course, was better, even though the studio edited the shit out of yeah. that and threw Wells off the Orson project. Orson Wells was not happy about that, yes. You know right. what's great? The Stranger and a lot of the, the, you know, the next wave of Orson Wells films were awesome. Some of them are... Some of the greatest films made in that era. So, yeah, I mean, definitely go back to those as well. Well, there you have it. I, maybe I should say Wells, there you have it, because that'd be a mm. joke, you see. But uh, that is our take and Ooh. our study guide of sorts, <laughs> proper reaction, of Citizen Kane to kick off this Mank miniseries leading up uh, to the Mank movie itself and then the Mank award shows that we will have coming for you uh, later on as we go. But we want to hear from you, dear listener. As always, have you seen Citizen Kane? Did you watch it as a prep and a gear up to the Mank movie coming out? And if so, either way, we want to hear from you, your thoughts. What do you think about what we said here? What were your thoughts on the movie in general? And what is your interpretation of what Rosebud does stand for? You can leave us all of those as well as any other comments, questions, complaints on our social medias. We are Mike, Mike and Oscar on both Facebook and Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter. Mike, Mike and Oscar at gmail.com.com. And on Reddit, we are available everywhere you hear podcasts, including and especially the Apple podcast app. If you happen to be listening to us on that app right now, if you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review that would be very kind of you and make our whole day michael uh you've teased it a little bit but tell the good people what's coming next from mmo and what are some words of wisdom to end on well we're going to do the rest of the mank mini series including our retrospective at the end of this week on the social network where i think a fincher biography filmography you know with jack and david uh, is in order because mm-hmm. they kind of were, were trying to make Mank for many years, for almost two decades before that passion project wound up at Netflix. And it, it is a really exciting story there. I think we'll finish this miniseries up with a Fincher Award show, but all of that, of course, is centered around our big review of Mank. And uh, I think it's going to be an all-timer from uh, in one way or the other, an all-timer for, for MMO. Like, it, it is underwhelming for you in particular hell hath no fury like a mike that doesn't get a great movie out of the movie he thinks is going to be a great movie this time that has to be afraid yeah that has to be the savior for the year for me too so i don't want to hype it up more than yeah it's okay and i really like it i I want to i really want to hype it up but i can't until you see it and and put your thumbs up somehow i i don't know what's going to happen it's a really nerdy cinephile movie for people and it's kind of a movie that that really rewards multiple viewings like i just rewatched it and i loved it even more but uh here's a movie that doesn't reward multiple viewings mike and i wanted to push out this out one mm-hmm. more time as well it is hillbilly elegy and <laughs> i perhaps gave my most unrelenting 
unforgivable. I was so upset. Unforgiving, I should have used, or and un- unforgivable because I'm really nasty in it. Uh, you know, you were supposed to be on the episode two for the movie marathon yeah. with Madi. We're going to get Madi on one of our episodes coming up soon. I think, I hope I won't put the cat out of the bag, but I, my God, did I just brutalize Good. Hillbilly Elegy film uh, f- for serious reasons, for silly reasons, for just good old fashioned movie critic having a hate feast, you know, uh, in terms of a, a, you know, hour and 20 minute review like today's was. So go and listen to that. That should be available to you guys on the movie marathoners podcast feed everywhere. You listen to podcasts tomorrow, Thursday, uh, Madi was getting that done. I think otherwise I cannot wait to hear it. I I was so upset that I couldn't go and I lost my voice and I, I got ill and I was just, I, I, I hope you did us both proud, buddy. I know you did because we both had a lot of uh, ire, let's say, once we start yeah. finish seeing that movie, it's rare that a movie comes along that we were planning to give an Oscar sprint profile to <laughs> that. We just totally can all together and say, we just can't do it. And we real like, we were agonizing over how to present this on our yeah. show. And we just said, F it. <laughs> we almost did a Razzie sprint profile. Yeah. Is what we almost did. And we probably should have, maybe we should have, but that's just probably mean, like piling on. So right. We didn't we, want to we, be outwardly venomous on our feed, right. but. I channeled all my hate and all your hate, hopefully, in spirit uh, against that movie and what turned out to be a great recording session. I have no idea how it'll come across, I can't wait though. to hear it. It's, it's pretty brutal. But, uh, Mike, in terms of words of wisdom, I will just say never plan anything, ever. Um, Sandwich. Which oh that's right Sam I'm really excited for my Sam oh I forgot about my sandwich I'm gonna have, I'm gonna go at that sandwich uh, look I mean I got my taste back it is full systems go right now Michael it is I I'm I'm just gonna gain thirty pounds in I'm, like I'm, the next week I'm excited for you I I can't I hope you keep a running tally of the caloric intake and uh, I, I I wish you nothing but the the best and conveyor belt sandwiches going directly into your gut there sir you've earned it after dealing I have with COVID. to make up. I have to make up right. for Thanksgiving. I have to make up for all the the, the stress eating I could have done right. when all of our plans last week were falling through <laughs> and the sky was falling, the power was going out, and you – it was hilarious it's, that you lost your voice when you lost your voice for no reason. It's unbelievable. It's actually un- – because I have this it, – it, I'll get to it another time. It's unbelievable what, what's been happening. But uh, yeah. yes, that's uh, that's the latest and that's the last from us as far as uh, Citizen Kane goes and the kickoff to this Mank miniseries, guys. As always, when reality sucks or you get sick out of nowhere for no reason whatsoever, <laughs> you can come watch these movies and share some laughs with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you all very soon. Rose <laughs> Perfect.